Welcome to the Nicholas Natale Show. This week on the podcast, we have Justin Caffrey. Justin Caffrey has had eight multi-million dollar companies. Yes, eight separate multi-million dollar companies. He's studying in the prestigious School of Psychology at University College Dublin, and the program is in collaboration with Oxford University in the UK. He's a certified investment fund director with expert knowledge of the financial markets, complex financial instruments, financial accounting, and business analysis. He's attended the Yamabushi Master Training deep in the Chennai Mountains of Japan, which only a handful of Westerners have completed. He's a psychotherapy coach who works with some of the greatest minds in business, pro sports, and politics, helping them enhance their performance and quiet their minds. In 2014, he came to terms with losing his son Joshua, giving him a chance to take stock, rebalance, and find what was important to him. Hey, entrepreneurs, we know what it feels like to hit a plateau, am I right? Our business hits a wall, we're feeling burnt out, overworked, and our relationships start feeling that impact. My main man, Scott Anderson from Double Dare You, has got the remedies for you. Scott is an entrepreneur coach and business consultant who has helped scale over 550 businesses. He's helped over 2,190 executives and has been a proven leader for optimizing performance, scaling your business, and refining your leadership. He's offering listeners a free consultation call Visit DoubleDareYou.us to schedule your free consultation call today, baby. That's D-O-U-B-L-E-D-A-R-E-Y-O-U.us for your free consultation call. And since you're heading online, go on over to NicholasNatale.com slash shop for some merch. YouTube.com slash NicholasNatale for new videos every Monday. We have a great side hustle series coming up. And leave a five-star review for this podcast. Do it. Then share this episode with a friend on social media and in the messages, wherever, you, wherever you'd send them. Tell everyone you know. This week's riddle, what did addition say to subtraction when they discovered each other on Facebook? Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out. If you want to be a sponsor of the podcast, reach out to me at Nicholas Natale on Instagram for more information. That was the intro. Now here's the episode. Hello and welcome. This is the Nicholas Natale Show. I am your host, Nicholas Natale. Today we have a very special guest, Justin Caffrey. Justin, season's greetings. Thank you, Nicholas. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited you're here. Let's let's dive right into it. Here's what I know. You're born in Northside, Dublin. I'm not entirely sure where that is because I've never been to Ireland, but it's what I know. You had a working class upbringing. Your father struggled with depression and some other mental health issues um and from 6 to 16 was a fairly isolating time but around 13 you decided that you had to take on a more resilient mindset why do you think that you lean toward resilience rather than a less productive path and what was what was really going on in your childhood during that time great question um i think you know i was growing up at a time where I could see a lot of um, struggle financially with money. So my parents had had lots of problems financially. And then in addition to that, my my old man at the time was was really in a bad way with with anxiety, with depression. He was he was uh, really, really struggling. He had um, electric shock treatment around about the time I was 11 or 12, um, which, you know, was, was still considered a reasonable thing to do back at that time in the 80s. Um, my parents didn't really know how to talk to me about it. And within my family, the next um, oldest 
to me was like 14 years apart and my and my oldest sibling was 18 years older than me so there was a huge time gap and i was the one at home living with my parents um so i didn't really have anybody to talk to and for whatever reason and i don't really know why i just felt that there was a better way to get through this and that was to kind of hunker down um build up a wall, build up some defenses, um, and, and find a way through. And, and there was a, there was a moment at 12 when I saw my parents, um, really in, 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 in a great deal of distress over bills that he couldn't pay. And my old man was, was not somebody that I was really looking up to as a strong character. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of what I could see in him that I didn't want to be and lots of what I could see in their finances that I didn't want to be part of my life. So I was making some pretty tough calls at, at 12 as to the fact that I needed to make this happen by myself. There wasn't going to be anybody around holding my hand. Um, and I think that just harnessed the sense of resilience. I, I probably I wasn't naming it at that stage, but I knew it was kind of mm-hmm. me against the world in many ways. Oh, man. And then so did you have any sort of influence that kind of filled that spot of, okay, I'm not looking up to my father, but maybe I can pull some attributes from, from this, this man in my life, or, you know, was there any, any person or any events that were keeping you kind of like instilling that mindset a little bit? Because I feel like there's, you know, some people that grow up in a situation where their father figure isn't quite the best role model. They either fall to the wayside or they, they bunker down like you do. So I'm, I'm wondering why it was the way it was. Yeah, I mean, I had, a, I had an older brother um, who, who I looked up to at the time, especially as he had kind of made it out of. We, we, were, we were living in a pretty rough environment. Um, I went to some tough schools. My brother had, had actually made it in media. Um, he'd become a DJ on... Uh, national radio station in ireland he was making money he was really carving a pathway out that looked very different to what was the likely outcome for everybody else where i grew up so i kind of felt that there was some connection to him um and that was somebody that i looked up to but equally you know we, we didn't live together at this stage um we 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 wouldn't have seen each other um that often and Generally speaking, and, and I think I felt this way for a lot of my life, um, I, I, I looked inwards, you know, I, I just felt mm-hmm. there is a way, there is a means to get through this and and I can build it myself. And I, I'd love to know where that thought or feeling actually came from. Um, but I'm very thankful that it was there because some of those years in my teenage years were pretty dark, um, especially when my dad was, was really unwell. So it was it was a good time to find it. That's that's interesting. We we have a lot of parallels then, um, because my oldest sibling is sixteen years older, and then the closest to me in age after that is ten years. Oh wow! And yeah, and it's the same thing. It was my older brother who almost in the in similar situation where you know my father wasn't super present, and my brother kind of took on. I don't know. I don't know what it was really. Just like. Maybe maybe a sense of hope, kind of like what you saw in your brother that, okay, he's making something of himself and there's no reason I can't either. Um, so during school, did you also, what was school like for you? Were there any, was there any struggles during, during school during all this time? 
Yeah, I mean, for for me, kind of junior school was definitely um, a struggle, especially like the early part of junior school. I've got some great memories of that, but but around the time that my you know my my old man was institutionalized for for quite some time, um, and especially kind of leading up to to the electric shock treatment. And my parents hid that from me. Uh, my family hid it from me as well. I was probably, I don't know, nine, ten. I mean, this was the 80s, and it was thought, well, you know, don't tell kids anything. It's better off right. if they don't know. Um, but, of course, I kind of knew that he was missing, um, and that meant yeah. I had some tough times in school trying to describe what was going on or, or where where my father was. And during those periods, I'd say from... You know, definitely from from seven when my godmother committed suicide, who was my father's sister, um, and my father's family were ravaged with mental health. Um, so she mm-hmm. she was in an institution. Um, she got out, and she drowned herself uh, in a in a river, and that really destabilized my old man significantly, and it impacted me as well because she was a beautiful phenomenal presence in my life um, up until I was seven. I've got great memories of her. So. The family unit struggled at that moment, and as my dad progressively got worse, for me, you know, seven to fourteen was a time when I didn't really know where I fitted in. Um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily bullied in school, but I became quite insular. So I was, I was not really hanging out. I was staying away from people. Um, I, I, I was trying to struggle with who I was and what I was about. Um, so it was a lonely period of, in my life, definitely as a, as a younger child. Building up the walls. I mean, you have to have some defense toward, toward life. That's all the things that life is throwing at you. When yeah. you found out about your godmother, did you have any worries that maybe your father would do the same? Like maybe this institutionalization isn't the right move or were you taking on some of that burden that your father was going through? What feelings were you having? Well, no, because they they didn't tell me that she committed suicide. I actually found out she oh. committed suicide when I was twenty one. Um, my mom told me when I was twenty one, and I, I I nearly you know fell over um, when I heard it. So it was hidden from me, and and maybe actually in some ways that wasn't a bad thing because I probably would have correlated her experience and where my old mom was, and thought, okay, this is inevitable. So. So no, I mean, as far as I, I knew, she was she was dead. Um, but you know, you probably don't have to give a, a seven year old a huge amount of detail other than that. Um, but I remember hearing the news, um, and I remember the loss and and her not being there anymore. Um, and she was she was a really beautiful presence. You know, like you 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 know what I mean, Nicholas. You've met people in your life who just resonate something incredible for you to be around and then all of a sudden she was gone um and that and that impacted me yeah and i and did you use isolation as a form of just creating space for yourself to think or were you trying to push away all the things that were not quite good what was your what was your tactic do you think in retrospect in retrospect i i feel i feel like it was dark um and and it was only it was only when I went into therapy that I even unlocked memories from from seven to fourteen. Like that whole period of time, up until you know six or seven years ago, was a complete um, blank. I had nothing there at all. But I I know now from reflection that it was it was you know it was back to 
all right, you know, we're going to get through this. I'm going to figure it out. I don't really know how or why or what's going to happen next, but I've just got to push through. Um, and and it was it was definitely the building of defenses. You lose somebody close that you love. My dad was was you know um, missing at times. Like even when he was at home, he would be in bed. He couldn't he couldn't really engage with me. We never played sport. We never hung out together. That just didn't what wasn't part of my life. So people who were close to me were not really part of what was going on. And my mom was 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 stuck um, trying to trying to cope with my with my dad. So. Um, I definitely went through a period of time of just thinking relationships and people who are close to me don't bring me value and actually they can let me down. So, so that was, mm-hmm. that was definitely a start of a pattern that would, that would follow on for a while. Yeah. And it's interesting. You talk about the memory block too, because I feel like that really happens. Like a lot of the most traumatic parts of my life, I have a hard time tapping into those, those memories at times. Yeah. So as as the um, you took on that maybe I can't trust these people in my life, and you took on this I'm gonna do things on my own. I'm gonna make sure that I, I I get things going. And I've heard you say that many of the highest performers that you work with now have had something traumatic occur during their their lives, um, and this kind of pushes them into that independent, self sustaining, almost obsession with success. Uh, do you think that's true for you? And why do you think that's a result of experiencing things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a trait that I've seen working with clients over the over the past six or seven years. And I think, well, it's funny when I when I was in therapy with a with a, with a psychiatrist who became my teacher as well. Um, one of the first things he said to me, I don't know, maybe we we're three sessions in, and he said to me, he said, you know, you you know, you're a borderline functioning psychopath. I was like, (laughs) Um, always reassuring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a really positive experience and, and, you know, he's, he, he's, he's so funny, but he delivered it in such a deadpan way to, to get me to get a sense of who I was. And, you know, thankfully he said psychopath and not sociopaths. So the, the nature of, successful people in inverted commas you know if you're if you're the senior um in in your own company or you know you've made it in professional sport you have to have singularity of focus and you also have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get to where you need to get to and Mm -hmm. that's not what everybody's made of like most people don't really have that inside them and and the more i study people the more i get a sense of what drives them? What brings that forth? And it's often the need to run away from something that happened when you're younger that you never want to go back to. And a lot of professional sports people come from poor backgrounds and it's the fear of poverty. And, and, and even the funniest thing is that no matter how much money or success you get, the drive is still always there to keep pushing, you know, it, it, and it, and it mm-hmm. moves into that imposter syndrome. I'm going to get found out. I need to keep moving forward as fast as I can. Or, you know, any minute now, all this will be taken away. So so I think it 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 instills that and it instilled it in me. Um, and I see that so much with successful people. And the the challenge, like to go back to your point about the traumatic memories. When I've studied neuroscience, the interesting thing is that we file these traumatic memories because it was how the human race survived. 
you know, it wouldn't have been unusual 500 years ago or a thousand years ago that, that maybe my family gets slaughtered from the village mm-hmm. who are just up, up, you know, the road from me. And I need to be able to see that, deal with it. And then a couple of months later, start another family, because that's how we've managed to stay on this planet for 200,000 years. But we take those memories, and we bury them deep inside our traumatic um, file bank. And it works for a while, but then more traumatic memories get filed in and we can't eventually we can't deal with what is what is accumulated in there. And then that brings on some kind of disjointed approach or maladaptive practices with, with alcohol or, or, or sex or drugs or whatever. So, you know, again, if you think about the successful people, if you think about these driven, determined individuals, you know, you find CEOs are, are, are running marathons, running ultra marathons, you know, they, they, they often end up with drink problems or, or they have matrimonial problems because there's maladaptive behaviors that are supporting this drive and determination that's got them to be the 1%, but they get to that level without a sense of, of balance or harmony in their life. Where do they start? Where should they start? And is there a time where it's enough? Because, you know, I've asked the same question to myself um, that you said, like, where does my drive come from? And a lot of times I have a hard time identifying it. Um, And I I 100 percent agree that the the trauma is is pushing us forward to maybe like get some distance from, you know, if my success is far enough away from my trauma, then I'll be (laughs) I'll be okay. But where do I start if I want to, like, chop away? at some of that stuff and find a healthy balance and not have to go to alcohol or drugs or sex? Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough question. I mean, I think for most people, and and certainly I'm including myself on this, it often takes the, the, the final event, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back where you just can't take anymore and your body starts to break down before you, before you get to pay attention. I think mm-hmm. some people are better at it now. And, and certainly when I look at sports clubs um, and, and I work with some sports psychologists as well, what I find quite interesting is that they're really open to the idea of exploring Eastern philosophy. They look interested in exploring mindfulness. And that really gives me a sense of hope that it, there is a potential for these sports stars to be successful because the success in many ways, the drive and determination is what's got them out of of the poverty, out of the difficult situation, or the broken home. Again, you know what? What do you find normally with with, with people uh, this A type personality? Alcohol, drugs at home, mental illness. So they've they've escaped that. And and if we can intervene early enough, we can create some balance so they don't destabilize. But I think the the when is enough is often hard to answer yourself because you're often trapped inside your own kind of wheel, you know, the hamster wheel. You're on it and you're you're running faster and faster. And and, and other people can even watch you and say, you do know you're like running on a hamster wheel. You're not actually going anywhere. But the intensity of your approach is what sustains you. So you don't you don't get off it until such time as you you collapse and fall off it. Yeah, your identity, your self worth is all in the drive. It's all in the intensity. That's what that's what we bring to the table. Is that um, so? I agree. It's hard to get off. And I don't. You know what? Let's let's hop back into your your timeline a little bit. So post 
high school, um, you attended college and you studied computer science and then you're offered a job in London in banking. So at 19, you headed to London and you started climbing the ladder like a madman. That's a big jump, I feel like. Ireland to London. You became a manager at 21, had two promotions, leading the team. Was it a tough decision to jump ship and head straight to London and start this new career? No. It was an escape. It was an opportunity mm-hmm. to put everything behind me and get out. Um, so it was it was definitely a moment of like, hey, I'm, I'm leaving Dodge and I ain't coming back. So when that opportunity presented, I ran and... Dublin and London um, today, in 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 the current environment, there's not a huge amount of difference. You know, they're they're both kind of financial capitals now in Europe and and vibrant cities. But in 1993, 94, that was really quite different. Ireland was um, a really um, basic economy. It was finding its feet in Europe. Um, we had a lot of poverty, huge amounts of unemployment. And to go to London, which was, you know, it was a capital of the world, it was just incredible. I mean, my eyes were open to so much, um, and I couldn't believe how lucky I was. I landed on my feet. I brought my work ethic. So, you know, I, I just worked as much and as hard as I possibly could and, and excelled and, and got promoted. And, and yeah, you know, by, by 21, I was making a lot of money. I was probably getting you know, the equivalent of $200,000, $250,000. Um, and that was, what was that, 25 years ago. So, yeah, that was pretty mental. Yeah, it, it, you were buying an apartment in London, which I hear is difficult to do. So what was guiding your lifestyle decisions at that time? Like, you're, you're young, you're ambitious, and now all this money's coming in. <laughs> How are you deciding what was next for you? I was just working. Um, you know, money, money back then and now, uh, it's never, it's never been a driver. I've always understood that the, the equation is pretty simple that if you, if you, you know, if you hunker down, if you work hard, then, you know, money is a byproduct of that. So I knew that all I needed to do was keep moving forward, you know, just keep that resilient focus. So I was always interested in, in the next thing, you know, what, what was the next thing I could achieve that would eventually, of course, or so I hoped, be the holy grail. You know, that moment where I put the hand in the trophy and I go, ah, yeah, this is what it is. So I was, I was so driven and so determined, but I wouldn't say I was, I was driven by money, definitely success. And how would people perceive me, especially to go back home to Ireland? You know, you want to go back to your hometown and, you know, drive your, drive your fancy car and wear some, you know, cool suits and and look the Mm -hmm. part and have people notice you so that was probably massive ego um pumping through my veins yeah and i I mean it's it's tempting to fall into i can't say i would be higher than that i would i would for sure fall right into the same trap so your your ego is kind of driving this and then there comes a point where your boss is like hey you've been promoted (laughs) twice in the past two years and you're not going to get promoted for a while. And this led to some conflict. Am I right? What did you say? What was the falling out? Um, And then what was your next move? Yeah. I, I I never, I never really comprehended the fact that I was going to get held back because of my age. Um, 
and I had mm. I had been promoted like nobody was as young as me in that role in 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 the in the organization um and I was literally told look you're you're you've had too much too soon you're you're too young the next role that you get would be like um at a director level and that's just not going to happen till you're in your 30s and I, at, at this stage I was I don't know 22 maybe since <laughs> 8 years away and you know at 22 Eight years is an extraordinarily long time. Um, so I was not happy at all. Um, and, and then at the same time, um, the, uh, the bank started to, to move some of my clients around. Um, and it was, it was that perfect storm where they kind of undermined my position to earn. Um, and, and there was God knows what reasons behind that. Plus, they told me that I'd have to wait longer and I was just a fiery-headed kid, so I just rocked into my boss's office and went, well, I'm out of here, see you later, and, and quit. <laughs> and I had nowhere to go. Wow. <laughs> Take that. I'm, I'm gone. Deuces, see you later. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly so what it was like. You know, walked out of the building thinking, I am so cool for doing that. And then <laughs> as you drive off, you think, uh, okay, what now? <laughs> I'm driving home and I have nowhere to be tomorrow. Uh, so what did you do? What was your next move? How did you turn from, okay, and now my job's gone to, I had probably have, you know, this fire still in my belly to succeed. What's your move? Yeah. I, so a buddy of mine had, had started um, a small brokerage. He, he'd asked me before about joining and, you know, it was it was outside London. It wasn't where I wanted to be, and um, you know, there was a lot of kudos and prestige attached to my job, and this just seemed like, why would I want to do that? But but now I'm mm -hmm. I'm unemployed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, well, you know, what am I going to do now? So my next phone call to him after I'd kind of calmed down and and realized that high fiving myself for being unemployed was not really um, great uh, news. So I rang him and said, look, uh, I've just quit. And do you want to meet up and talk about going to business together? So I, I, I would, I, I would, I would hazard a guess to say it was probably the next day because I'm not one to, to sit around and maybe have a week off and chill out. So I'd say I was probably on it the next day and, and, and we agreed to get going and, and we built the business from, from that point. Um, and it was, it was a pretty wild ride then for the next, um, eight years. Yeah. How did you turn it into a success? How did you turn you and your friend on a phone call saying, let's do business into, you know, a, a profitable, sustaining business? Did you face struggles? Was this a big risk for you? Did you have any prior experience running businesses? No, no. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to run my own little businesses when I was a teenager. So I was always like, um, coming up with some kind of scheme or way of making money when I was a teenager. So uh, I, I'd i always had that entrepreneurial flair um, mm -hmm. from a really young age and I needed to make my own money when I was a teenager. So it just became uh, kind of a conditioning. So I wasn't afraid of the idea um, and the, 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 the connection with, with, with my friend, I, I knew he was pretty, he was, he was really driven too. I mean, he was, he was a very determined person um, and, you know, he'd already been running the company at this stage, I don't know, maybe like two years and there was 
maybe five five or six people in it so it was it was just kind of doing quite nicely and making him a nice living but but I wanted to turn it into a financial institution you know this was this mm-hmm. was this was my desire um so how do we how do we do it um through uh, sheer grit, determination, and and hard work, um, and it was uh, a period of my life really for I, I'd probably include all of my twenties that I don't remember very much about them other than working. Um, and over the eight years, we we acquired a few businesses, we set up a, a, a different company, we operated in different countries, um, and we wow. and we had a we had a couple of hundred um, staff. We were. Um, one of the biggest independent financial um, institutions in in the UK, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was full on. You know, we 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 ended up in a situation where you know you come and see us in our offices, and we were we both had our nine eleven Porsches parked outside. Mm. We were like the typical um, financier assholes. Um, so we we, <laughs> we personified everything that was needed in that regard. Were you happy? Um, like as as things continued to grow, was it ever increasing joy? Uh, I don't think I understood what joy was at that stage. Mm. Um, I always remember I, I would take a vacation when I would get to the point where I feel like I'm about to collapse, and then I had a I had a travel agent that I used, um, and they always got me into like really nice hotels and book me flights to get me like out of the country the next day because it would literally be okay I'm totally finished get me away somewhere and I'd go away for a week always on my own and and then I just you know recharge a little bit and then within a couple of days I'm I'm scribbling and thinking ideas and I'm wanting to get back to work so I think I thought I was happy um, and I think I probably defined happiness as other people looking at me going, wow, what you do is absolutely amazing and you're super impressive. But I was um, probably in many ways, like I was a tenant in my own life. I wasn't really actively involved in it. I was just kind of hanging out within it. Mm. Yeah. So how do you define happiness now? What's what's changed for you? Do you work yourself to the bone now or do you have consistent balance? How do you go about it? Now happiness for me is well, it's balance. I mean, my my morning times are are sacrosanct. So so I I, I, I get up at about five AM and I won't do any work with a client or speak to anybody till eleven. Um and, and those hours in between are for meditation, cold water swimming. I'll run a few times a week, but I'll, I'll also have, you know, at least half an hour with my wife where we'll just sit and talk. Um, I'll see my son. Um, I'll walk into, into my town, like where I live in, in Ireland, Greystones is, is a blue zone really. Um, so we've got this incredible plant-based community, um, a very sporty outdoors lifestyle. Um, we're, we're, we're on, we're by the sea, we're on a marina. So it's, it's, life to me now is 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 all about consuming it as much as i can um mm. but but the the drug is always there and it's funny um i've been working on a on a video edit to do with my online course and um the editors two days ago couldn't get it done so they said oh you know we're not going to get our team ready until tuesday and i thought oh i need it already so so yesterday i just got on and watched some YouTube videos about how to use Final Cut Pro and edit a video myself. 
and immersed myself in it literally for like 19 hours and delivered it. Oh my gosh. And I said to my wife, you know, there it is. That's what that drug is because I could literally feel it um, pumping through my veins, knowing that I'm working towards something and it's going to be cool. And I know it will always be good because I put a hundred percent into it, but it's dangerous because when it's there, I have to recognize it and go, Whoa, step back now. Yeah. So what's your relationship with it? Are you like, could you see yourself getting addicted back to, to that type of work ethic style? Or are you, you know, constantly, as you said, like, I just put 19 hours in, I'm gonna (laughs) take a break a little bit. Or is it, I put 19 hours in and that felt really good. And I want to, I want to find an opportunity to do that again. Hey, don't mean to interrupt, but I got to tell you who we're sponsored by. This episode is sponsored by DoubleDareYou.us. My man Scott Anderson has the remedies for you blocked entrepreneurs or for you entrepreneurs that want to take your business to the next level and scale it. No more hitting walls, only peaks, baby, peaks. You can visit DoubleDareYou.us, D-O-U-B-L-E-D-A-R-E-Y-O-U.us schedule a free consultation call it's free what do you got to lose don't you want your business to be good while you're heading online you can also hit up the shop nicholasnatalie.com shop and be sure to leave a review for this podcast five stars baby come on be sure to share this episode with a friend share it on social media tell everyone you know let's get the word out all right sorry for interrupting back to the episode it's probably a mix of the two like i put 19 hours in that felt really good but i know that that good has got so many bad things connected to it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to I'm able to even sense it coursing through my veins. Like I, I know it's there. So thankfully, you know, now my 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 practices in in Buddhism, my sense of awareness, are, it's so important. So it's it's being able to get my feet on the ground and be present to what I'm doing, and it's noticing that okay. I'm going to use this intensity that I know I have, but I'm going to use it for the right reasons. And then I'm going to be able to set it down. And, and my wife is, you know, we're 16 years married and she's a phenomenal woman. And she will just say to me, you know, you got to sort your, your, your shit out, man. Don't, don't let it consume you again. So awareness is key and understanding how to dip in and out of it. Um, but I, I I enjoy life too much now to to get totally hooked on it again. Um, and enjoyment in the context of community, my times in the morning. I mean, that's just so fulfilling. So you know the 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 nature of enjoyment in the mornings is this nice constant um, ease within my body. Whereas the the nineteen hour straight out deliver a video is adrenaline. And, and I, and I, I, I know what that feels like and I don't want to have it. Do you think that you hit flow state when you're like, let's say you're working on a 19 hour video and then do you also hit a flow state when you're taking time in the mornings for yourself? Or do you think those are two separate types of, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm describing it right. Separate types of, um, cause you know, when like you get involved in something and you know, you kind of have this outer body experience where productivity is like up to 500% and time is flying. Do you experience that in both of those areas? Yes, absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting. I really enjoy noticing and the awareness of, of the two of them because 
they're they're they both represent this capacity to raise your frequency to such a level that you are elated emotionally um so so that's that's present um but the flow state in the morning you know my my awareness around my own practice my awareness of grounding myself meditation cold water swimming spending time in my community meeting meeting my friends at the beach that that is a flow and that is a beautiful state and it's a state where there is a capacity for harmony there's a there's a homeostasis around it the the flow state in that 19 hour shift is the same flow state that I would have got when I was working hard and it's it's at a higher pace and a higher intensity and it's it's in many ways it's it's no different to you know if you're going out for a run you can have that runner's high if you're running for you know a long period of time on on relatively flat surfaces you can enjoy a run you can also get a runner's high but really going hard into some hills but eventually the body starts to to buckle and your heart rate goes too high and you lose your capacity to stay there so so they're 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 both there but one is sustainable for the long term which is how i live my life now and the other one will eventually kill you so it's not a good option yeah it's like one is running yourself straight into the ground and then the other one is running you on a horizontal plane where you can continue and probably enjoy more as (laughs) time continues um Okay, so I want to jump back to where you're working in on this business. You know, it's it's growing like crazy, and around this time, like maybe 26, your sister lost her third child to meningitis. Yeah, is that am I? Is that correct? So yeah, where yeah. were you when you found out that news, and what impact did that have on you? Well, bizarrely, um, I happened to be home, so I am. Um, I flew home um that weekend to to dublin from from london um and uh i was i was in a relationship like all of my relationships were were short-lived and disastrous during my mm-hmm. 20s but i'd sw- I, I flew home to, to to try and get out of a relationship and 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 figure out what was going on in my head mm-hmm. and i'd gone out um on this particular night with my brother we were we were out uh, in the in the city partying together, and um, the next morning I was staying at my parents' house, and uh, I could hear my 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 old man like wailing in the in the room next door, mm. and it was like this primal noise that I couldn't understand what it was, and and I went into the bedroom, and he was throwing himself around on the ground and screaming, and all he kept screaming was the boy, the boy, and I. I didn't. I didn't know what was going on. I, I, I initially thought my mom was dead because she wasn't in the house. I was hung over. You know, I'd been out till maybe I don't know three a.m. or something. So I was a bit confused at this point. So I, I, I had to pin him down on the ground and shout at him to tell me what was going on. And then he said to me that Nabil um, is dead. And I, and I, and I it was just one of those moments where I thought, what? And I don't, I'd only seen him. The, the the previous day he he was an 18 month uh old young you know fantastic uh eager full of energy young boy and um and now i'm being told this so um that was that was shocking and um it sent a shockwave to the whole of my family um in in a massive way 
Um, my nieces and nephews were were probably at that stage the oldest, maybe fourteen. So there was a there was there was like nine kids from from um, slightly younger than Nabil to, to fourteen. Um, all my siblings. So our whole family changed. Like the world changed at that moment. Um, and uh, I was there for for the next few weeks. I stayed in Ireland, um, and and it really impacted me to to such a degree. And my sister asked me to to drive her to the uh, to to the funeral and to the grave. And um, my my sister is married to um, a Muslim, so they they bring the dead um, wrapped in in a shroud, and she didn't want him in a coffin. So I was 25, 26, and I drove them for like 45 minutes in, in the car with them in the back of the car with their dead child in their hands. And I could see this in the in the mirror, um, and it massively impacted me. I mean, I you know, in the weeks afterwards, I had several occasions where, you know, I probably did the better part of a bottle of whiskey and, um, and tried to get away from that. I never dealt with that pain properly at that stage. Um, and it created my biggest fear, which is, you know, what would it be like if one of my own children died? You know, the, 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 the kind of way that every parent wants to avoid, but I'd seen and witnessed it firsthand and I saw how it just tore through my family. Um, so yeah, that was, that was dark, really tough and a horrible period of time, um, for me and, and obviously for my, my sister and brother-in-law and, and their, and their two other kids as well. How did you, um, did did alcohol become a, a a crutch for you during that time? Did it did it continue to spiral downward before it showed signs of hope? Um, I think I I definitely had like you know some I'd say I had quite a few serious benders you know um, where it was just like God <laughs> you know days where where I just disappear off the radar. Um, and, uh, so, so that was, that was definitely, um, a problem and an issue at, at that time, but equally, I'd say maybe kind of five to six weeks in, I realized I need to, I need to kind of pull my shit together and, um, and not let this happen. So, so it, it was, I think it could have got really bad at that point, um, but I didn't let it. I, I, I knew I knew this wasn't going to go well. And and I was also focused on where I wanted to go in my business and career and all that. So so I, I did pull it back together again. But it was um, that was pretty close to it all going very, very wrong. No question about it. Did you have any resentment toward the situation or anger toward God or whatever higher being do you believe in? Did were what was the internal battle with, you know, having Nabil passed so early? I think, you know, back then it was hardwired territory stuff. You know, I, 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 I bled out for those four to six weeks. I drank a lot. Um, I, I, I was just out of control. Um, and then, and then I, and then I just dusted myself down like I was, like I was fifteen again, um, wow. and and disassociated myself with with everything that went on. Um, and uh, I think, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe a couple of months later, um, a buddy of mine 
um, who, who'd left uh, banking in London and, and gone off to get his um, captain's license was was in the Caribbean and uh, he rang me and said look why don't we why don't we um, charter a yacht and come out here and and sail and and I did, and I and I, you know, I jumped on a plane, and, and we and we went and sailed around Martinique and Saint Lucia for two weeks, and 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 uh, dr- again drank a lot, um, smoked a lot as well. So the Caribbean is is pretty dangerous for that too, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I think I just got to the point where I let it all out, um, and then I realized I need to come back to reality. Man. Whew. But then right around the corner, something great happens, you know, and when you're, when you hit 30, you meet your wife. That's great. Um, I'm curious as to how your, uh, your wife was, was able to, what's the right word here? Catch your eye while your priority was so focused on work during a lot of that time. What about her made you stop and, you know, make this relationship different than the ones you've had previously? Well, it's a funny story, but um, I I was I was dating a, a girl close to my office, and um, I finished with her. I wasn't nice to her. Her best friend was like the the, the morning uh, DJ on like the major station covering covering like the whole of the south of England, and she uh, on the radio show. Um, more or less named me and said where I am and who I am and and where where, <laughs> where I frequent on a Friday night and and any woman who has any sense should stay as far away from me as possible. Um, wow! So, so I became. Um, <laughs> That's bold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, yeah, there's there's been lots of times when I deserved a lot of things and and I definitely deserved this. I mean, thankfully her. Her friend uh, uh, Vicky and and myself are actually really good friends now, um, but at that stage, um, I deserved it. So I, I was I was like you know a wanted man for all the wrong reasons in that whole area. <laughs> and uh, it was two thousand and four, and internet dating had just started, and somebody told me about it, and I thought, oh okay, wow, I'll do that. Um, my my friends were were living in South London. Um, and it was an area where I thought, well, I could go on internet dating. I could date people around where they live. Nobody, nobody will know me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nobody heard the radio. <laughs> nobody, no, hopefully nobody's heard the radio show. It wasn't broadcast in that part of uh, town. So I thought, you know, let's, let's do that. So I, I, and I thought internet dating was perfect. You know, I could, I could meet women. There was no real commitment issue. Um, you know, people were just having fun. It was all good. And I had a whole bunch of dates and it was all, um, you know, just simple, um, fun for me at the time. And then, and then I met my wife and, um, you know, she, we met in a bar, um, and the, and the bar was, you know, five minute ride from, from my friend's house. And I'd left our, their house that evening. I went, listen, you know, don't worry guys, I'll probably see you tomorrow. Yeah. It's like, it'll, this will be a, another cool night. And when I met my wife that night, she did not really take to me at all. She thought I was an arrogant mm-hmm. asshole, which was, absolutely 100% correct at the time um <laughs> and after you know after a couple of hours and a couple of drinks she just got up and said look you know you're not really my type and kissed me on the cheek and left so I had to tell between my legs call my buddy and and ask him can you come back and pick me up so mm-hmm. 
that was enticing and um she did not really want to play ball and i and i pursued her for the better part of six months to get my second date um so that was that was a wholly different experience because when somebody is not interested and you are so unimpressive to them you suddenly realize this is probably the person that i need to be around with because they don't really care about anything from the outside they're interested in what's inside so um that was the, that changed my life um, massively um and changed how i felt and i knew i'd, I'd fallen in love with her um so we got our second date and um, within three months of the second date, I, I, I asked her to marry me. And within six months, we got married. So it was it was wow. pretty intense. Wow, that's incredible, man. The chase began. She she got you hooked. Oh, and yeah. then it also sounds like she broke down some of those walls of like, y- you know, you, you're not going to impress me with all this stuff. You got to show me what you're really about. I love that. Um, and that is a quick timeline for, for marriage. You must've known, you must've, you must've really, really got hooked. Yeah, I, I, I really did. I really did. There was something, there was something really special about her. Um, she was so grounded. She was so comfortable in her own skin, um, and self-sufficient and independent. Um, and, and that, that I found that really attractive. And then you went on and you had your first son, Luca, and then you're, you know, you had a, a company that was growing at a super big, got into horse racing and all sorts of stuff. What was the experience like having your first son? That's a, that's a huge deal. Yeah, that was, that was, that was incredible. Um, you know, it was really exciting. It was, uh, Luca was born on 28th of April, 2007. Um, business was booming. Life was 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 crazy. We, we um, myself and my business partner had gone into um, horse racing, so we were owners of of um, we had some incredible horses and, and and ran some really prestigious and won some prestigious races like Royal Ascot in in London and stuff. So it was a wild time. Um, and then my son came, and that was a moment where I started to just think a little bit differently about what was going on. You know, there was this you being in my life that that I just loved being around, you know, Saturday mornings, having him to play with and just play football with and kick around. And it, it was great. You know, he, he, those those first couple of years um, were, were such a blast um, and, and, I, and, I, and, it, and it changed something in me. But I, I had this massive fear, I can remember as well, because I didn't know how to be a dad. I had no role model to work from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was mm-hmm. really worried that I wasn't going to be good at it. Um, and uh, But I but I think it's just love conquers in the end. And um, it was a special time, really, really special. So I was I was super excited um, and, and really, uh, you know, still smitten to this day with Luca. He's, he's 14 um, next month and he's wow. a great kid. That's wild. Did you did you ever let that fear self sabotage you in any way? Did you ever manifest that into something bigger than it was than just the fear? Um, yeah, it did. It did at times. Uh, I think. I think it probably brought me to dark places at times and thinking I won't be good enough. I won't be able to be the dad that he needs. Um, Mm-hmm. And that and that was kind of trundling away in the back of my mind, um, and and you know, 
much later um when i really started to struggle with my mental health that that voice was there so there was that doubt um but i didn't know how to do it um despite the fact that you know my wife was just a massive cheerleader the whole way through this and she was just um you know constantly telling me i'm a great dad and i'm doing great things um but yeah that that doubt was there um and it was it was in the dark recesses of my mind but you know generally especially in those kind of first um years of luca's life um it was i was able to keep it at bay man that's that's very good and then you went on to try for another child and this i'm not sure i entirely have correct you tell me did you and your wife have three miscarriages while trying to have your second child who ended up being joshua yes yes we did that's that's completely accurate it was um luca we we kind of said oh let's try for children and it was almost instantaneous um yeah so we we went at it again thinking well you know this this should be like just the same really um and uh uh, it wasn't so it was it was Mm. a real challenge um on the third miscarriage um and it was a it was really tough for beatrice um medically and emotionally so in the third miscarriage we i remember we we met for lunch one day i came out of the office um we we were we arranged to meet up and, and i said to her then you know i think maybe we should stop and she was like oh i'm so glad you said that because I can't take it anymore. And um, so we agreed that we weren't going to have another child and, and we kind of drew the line under it at that moment. And I remember coming away from that lunch thinking, well, that's good. I'm, I'm super happy with what we have and, and I'm, I'm super appreciative for Luca and, and Beatrice. Um, but as it turned out, she was actually pregnant when we when we made that call. Oh. Um, so we, uh, we thought <laughs> we had... Ball. Yeah, it was like, well, that, you know, best laid plans and all that. Um, mm. So, so yeah, it turned out she was pregnant. And, um, and then this time, the, you know, we got past the, um, the early scans and we, we made it past 12 weeks and then 16 weeks and then 20 weeks. Um, so everything was, everything was looking quite good um, for, for this pregnancy. And we decided to have a quick vacation um, before we got to six months. So Beatrice was like 25 weeks pregnant at this stage. Mm-hmm. And we went down to, to Spain um, in, in January uh, 2010. Um, we flew down there to, uh, to catch a little bit of heat because it's, you know, Europe at that time of year is pretty cold and, and down the south mm-hmm. you've got some hope. So, um, so we flew down and we thought we'd have a few days and, um, I'd, I'd exited my, my business, um, probably, I don't know, a year, a year and a half earlier. And uh, mm-hmm. we were actually thinking maybe we'll, maybe we'll go and live in a different country because Beatrice is German and I'm Irish and we're living in the UK. So we had no real mm-hmm. you know, allegiance to stay there. So we said, well, let's get into Spain, look at a few houses, check out a few areas, have a vacation and um three days into that um she woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and told me that our waters had broken and i couldn't get my head around it because i knew that we weren't even six months pregnant at this stage so uh, yeah. that was not good yeah and then you're in this new location where i imagine you're not entirely familiar with 3 a.m you're scrambling um 
are you making phone calls? You, you hop right in the car. Where do you go? Well, I mean, at 3 a.m., we, we don't speak, we don't speak, well, we didn't speak Spanish at that point. Um, we Jeez. had no idea what to do except, well, let's go to the nearest city, which was about 160 miles away. Um, so Whoa. Yeah. Oh. We, we were, we were out, we were out in the, on the periphery of the coast. Um, so we, we headed off and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a crazy time. At one stage we, we went to a hospital that we found on a map, um, uh-huh. and, and it turned out that it was like a, a plastic surgery, um, place. Oh so no. They were like, oh, no, 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 wrong place. And they looked at Beatrice and they went, oh my God, no, you got to go. It's another 60 miles to, to this main maternity hospital. So we headed off, we had Luke in the car with us, we got there, um, they stabilized Beatrice and said, look, um, you know, you can't go anywhere for um, the next few weeks because all we got to do now is try and hold off um, the baby arriving. So they were kind of hopeful that they'd get a few more weeks and during that time, the lungs would get a bit stronger and, and, and you know, he would get a bit stronger. But uh, about three days in, she she started bleeding really badly um and they had to perform an emergency cesarean which you know they they whipped her off in front of me to to do the emergency cesarean and i didn't speak spanish and i didn't even know where in the hospital she'd gone um and i was out of contact with her then for about eight or ten hours until i found her again um and uh yeah that was that was that was pretty intense and, and a horrible a horrible memory but uh Joshua was born and um, he was given practically no hope at that point. They said, look, 24 hours, um, but he survived two days. He survived three days um, and, and, and he started, he was in neonatal intensive care. Um, he was, uh, I live with a German now, so my, my, um, my measuring is all in the metric system. He was like 900 grams, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's like, pound and a half of butter or something yeah. like nothing yeah um um he was tiny he he looked like a like a small bird um and uh and yeah the roller coaster started for us at that point oh being away from your wife for eight to ten hours while in a hospital where you don't speak the language that sounds very very tough it was horrendous it was horrendous. He starts to survive a few days. Yeah, so he survives a few days, and um, and then and then and then we start getting conversations with with physicians, and they're saying, look, you know, we don't really know what's happening or or, or how much um, damage he sustained, because um, they did the emergency cesarean because they couldn't get a heartbeat, so we knew that there was a period of time where where his heart wasn't beating when he was in the womb, but we didn't know how long that was, um, but. Uh, you know, we, we set off on the journey. Um, he was in neonatal intensive care for six months um, and in Spain. So we now had to just uh, relocate. Um, and, and, you know, we were, we were initially, we lived in a hotel for a couple of weeks. And then we, then we found a house and we put Luca in a, in a kindergarten. Um, and uh, your whole life has shifted. <laughs> everything. I mean, everything shifted. Um, I was involved in in a couple of big projects at the time I was on a real estate deal. Um, I was also, I was also raising money for, um, a couple of Hollywood movies because at that stage, oh, wow. 2010, 
um, all of the main financial hubs had pulled out of um, uh, the movie game because of the financial crisis. So private equity was stepping in. So I was involved in a couple of big projects and, and I just had to hand off to everybody and go, look, um, sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm out. Um, and I just needed to devote my time to, to Luca um, and, and Beatrice and, and Joshua. Um, so, yeah, the next six months we were just in and out of, out of the hospital every day. One of us taking turns with Luca, the other one taking turns with Joshua. Um, I broke my foot um, as well, so I spent about Whoa. six weeks on crutches. How did you break your foot? I, I was washing my car one Saturday, and um, Spain is, is, is a, bit of, it's a bit of a wild west at times. So some guy decided that there was a massive hole um, right where, where, you, where you use one of these power washers, um, uh-huh. and they covered the hole up with a plastic bag, but the hole was about oh my gosh. two foot deep. So I went one foot into it, holding onto one of these power hoses, and I tried to re stabilized and, and fractured my metatarsal. So um that was like really like, <sighs> yeah just another thing. You gotta be kidding me. Um so yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ugh. And describe to me how the, the medical process goes with Joshua as I know intubation was a big thing and that is really difficult on on anybody but especially on such a young child like that were you having to do that in your house as well or it was in the hospital and then you'd get to take him home well so they the way the way it worked for the first uh six months he was in neonatal intensive care and and he wasn't able to get out um so he was he was under under um supervision of the intensive care team he had multiple blood transfusions. He had collapsed lungs. He had pneumonia. Um, so he had he had so many challenges over that period of time, and he wasn't feeding. Um, so he had a feeding mm-hmm. tube in all the time. He was oxygen dependent all the time, um, and and they would eventually wean him onto lower levels of oxygen support. But then he would deteriorate, and and they'd have to intubate again. And and yeah, intubating a baby. It's pretty horrible. I mean, they 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 grab them by the by the hands and legs and pin them down, and and they got to intubate them while they're awake um, because they're, they're literally losing oxygen. So it's it's a really aggressive procedure, um, and uh, yeah, that that was probably three or four times for Joshua while he was in while he was in neonatal intensive care. But then he he turned a corner a bit, and they gave us an option. If we could live within a couple of kilometers, like a mile of the hospital, um, they would they would have a uh, um, hospital a domicile. So you 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 they would come out um, and 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 see him at home, and they trained us to be mm-hmm. his carers because he was still he was still tube fed, he was still oxygen dependent. Um, he had to have his airwaves vacuumed out by us, um, and he, and he didn't really sleep, so. We, we, we just took turns to, to kind of do the night shift. Um, but it meant that we got him home and Luca could see him because Luca could never get into neonatal intensive care. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we jumped at it and we thought, you know what, let's figure it out as we go. So we were all together um, and we had, you know, the next few months like that. But he, he kept deteriorating. So there was another couple of times where we couldn't sustain him at home and we'd have to do a, 
a mad dash back to the hospital. Um, and then, you know, they'd intubate him again. So all of the rehab that we were doing with him at that stage goes out the window because they intubate him and then they pump him with drugs. And, um, you know, he, he loses a lot of the cognitive memory that, that we've worked on. Um, and physically he deteriorates as well. So yeah, it was, it was a constant, um, downward spiral really. And then then near his, his, um, the last, last few days or last weeks, weeks they, they, you had a, a legal battle in order to take him home, but also you were able to have your entire family come. Is that from what I know? And that, that seems like that, that eased things as things were coming to an end. So in the last few weeks, what was it like? And what, what, what was it like for you? Where, where was your head at? Wow. You know, we, we had a kind of an unwritten deal, myself and Beatrice, at that, at that that stage that, you know, one of us could be down and the other one would always be up. You know, we knew that if that yeah. one was struggling, the other one was going to was gonna really fly the flag. So definitely one down days during those periods of time. You know, I can remember just sitting at the at the at the bottom of the shower um, on the floor crying, just thinking what, what happened to my life like what why why is this happening to us um and mm-hmm. and completely lost um and then you kind of dust yourself off and go okay we got to keep going here um so so that that was the challenge and um and we thought we were going to get Joshua out of Spain um he looked like he was recovering enough that we could get him back on an air ambulance so up until like 11 months he wasn't even well enough to fly back on a, on a private air ambulance but suddenly he started to look like it was possible we decided that we would fly back and we would come to live in ireland um because we needed more family around we knew we were going to have um a critically ill child who was possibly terminally ill but we weren't too sure at this point um and we were making those preparations but then um christmas eve that year um so we're like 11 months in he, he took really bad at home um, with us. We couldn't sustain him. We got him into the hospital and they needed to intubate again. Um, and this time they mm. said to us, look, this is the end. We're not going to do it again. Um, we don't even think we should do it now, but, you know, it's happened. Um, and uh, and they wanted to keep him and they wanted him to die in hospital. Um, and we just were mm. like so against that because he'd spent six months in hospital and, um, we wanted him to die with us at home. Um, but they were, they were unwilling to allow us to administer, um, morphine patches to him in case we killed him, which is like the irony of, of litigation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, we had to, we had to have a, have a, a pretty big battle with the hospital. Um, my sister-in-law who's Spanish, um, but she lived right up the North of the country, which is, which is a long way from where we were. We were right on the South. She came down for that and she helped me and um, we got it over the line. We got him home with us. We were given the, the, the morphine um, patches so that we could manage his pain because he, we knew he was going to die of asphyxiation um, because his lungs wouldn't, wouldn't hold out. Um, but we didn't want him to die in pain. Um, so we had, we had like three weeks then, um, with him being with us, we could, we could take away a lot of the, 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 the medicated side of things. Um, my mom and dad came over and Beatrice's mom came over from Germany. Um, and, uh, my sister-in-law, my niece, um, her boyfriend. Um, so a lot of people were there. 
Um, it was a lot of love. It was, you know, it was a real period of time where life slowed down and you could really smell and taste what it was to be human and to be in love um, and, and to be lucky. So it was just probably one of the most serenely beautiful periods of time in my life. Um, and, uh, and then on, on, the, on the last night, he, he started to struggle. He had, um, he had about eight or 10 um, small heart attacks in a row. Um, but he, he, and each time he did, we thought he, this is the end. And then he'd come back again and we we're like, oh my God, he's back. It was, <laughs> it was intense. Um, but he survived that night and he slept between um, myself and Beatrice. So we had a whole night together. Um, and the next day we knew it was coming to an end and, and my mom and dad brought uh, Luca down to the beach and Beatrice got Luca ready and, and packed up and I had Joshua in the bedroom. And when she came back up again, I just handed her Joshua and the minute he was in her arms, that was it. He, he died. Um, and it was, a, it was a beautiful end. And I think a great end for, for her and for him. You know, I really felt that he definitely waited to have that moment of connection back with her again. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the end of, of, of an extraordinary year. Sheesh. That is remarkable. Um, and then in the, in the months to come, how do you continue? You know, you've had a season of ups, downs, ups, downs, ups, downs. And then, you know, this, this, this final ending. And now it's time to continue life, you know? Um, so what do you do? Do you, how did you take on the last 11 months that just happened? Um, qu quite honestly, Nicholas, I, I didn't, um, you know, I think, yeah, I think for me, um, the, the reality was that, um, I, I was going to go back to what it was that I knew how to do. And that was, I'll go and build, um, another business. Um, mm. and I remember, um, I don't know, it was probably two weeks after Joshua's funeral, um, I was I was in the the boardroom of a bank pitching an idea, and and you know the boardroom emptied out. And the CEO was there, who was a friend of mine, and he was at Joshua's funeral, and he was like up to me afterwards at the meeting, going, "Well, you know that was really impressive, and I'm sure we can definitely work with you, but like, what are you doing here?" Um, yeah. and I thought he was the crazy one because I said, to him, "Well, you know, this is I've got to get on with it now. Like, this is this is what I do, and I got to go for it." Um. So in stark yeah. contrast, Beatrice was grieving. She was spending time walking in the mountains. We, we'd got a golden retriever at that stage. Um, and she was working through her grief. I was doing exactly what I had done all the way through my life prior to Joshua. And that was suppressing it, bury it, you know, put the hard shell and just push on. Um, yeah. But there wasn't a lot of capacity left in that tank. You know, the, the traumatic memory file is only so big and you can only shove so much in there. So when you try and shove too much in, it all starts to wobble and all of those traumatic memories start to reappear. And it was, it was like, you know, when you see, you know, a, a war veteran movie and you see those flashbacks, um, I was mm -hmm. flying a lot on planes and, and on a plane, you can't wear your headphones or watch a movie or anything at 
at takeoff and landing. And that was when I'd, I'd see my demons because I couldn't distract my mind. Um, and that's yeah. when the thread was starting to unravel. Oh, man. And, and time alone became, that's difficult. Because every time you're alone and you get flashbacks of something like that, then you try to not be alone and always continue to try to distract and distract and distract. Um, so how did you continue to try to distract and what was your breaking point when did you like when did it all explode inside your head um probably probably the 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 seminal moment was um i had a panic attack in a meeting um in in 2014 and um so that was three years after joshua died um i was i was probably you know um medicating with alcohol um, a lot at that point, not not like out of control, but it was definitely part of what was going on and work. So I, I had those two things um, going on in a big way. I was flying like 150 times a year. Um, I was in an important meeting and I had a panic attack and I needed to close a deal. And I didn't know if this was a heart attack or a stroke when it arrived. I'd never had a panic attack before. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, this is a this is a heart attack or a stroke. But I thought, I don't feel like I'm going to die. So I'll still close the deal and then I'll figure it out afterwards. Um, Jeez. And again, that kind of shows, you know, how screwed up I was. So um, I closed the deal and worked through this thing that went on for like 15 minutes or so. And then it and then it kind of abated. And I thought, OK, I'm fine. Um, I, I got the clients out of my office. I went back to my hotel. I, I went to the bar, had a couple of whiskeys and thought, well, I don't know what that was, but hey, I've closed the deal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the next few weeks, things just got worse and worse. And, and my head was out of control. The voices were constant. You know, you're not good enough. You're going to get found out. This is a disaster. Um, you know, everything in my past was coming back to haunt me. Um, and, and I was, I was struggling to remain sane, um, and, and thoughts of, uh, um, self-harm, suicide, um, these kind of things started to appear as, as a pathway out. Um, and I knew something had to give. And, um, I, I was also ever conscious of the fact that you know my dad had gone that way my my aunt had killed herself um you know my dad had mm. had had you know, serious issues with with desires to commit suicide as well and made an attempt so this was this was starting to scare me um i spoke to beatrice about it um and um you know she said look you got to get help i didn't want to get medicated because that was what happened to my old man all the way through his life um mm-hmm. So I found a I found a, an Indian psychiatrist who worked in Ireland um, who focused on on Eastern philosophy and meditation as a means to recovery and um, I started work with him and and that was I was right at the moment I would say where you know another two months I could have possibly committed suicide it was that bad the noise in my head was just deafening. Sheesh. And, and constant and nonstop, I imagine. Oh, Just yeah. R- relentless, never never letting you get a, a, a breath without it, the inner critic just laying it in on you. So when yeah. you started this this learning, studying, you know, therapy and kind of unraveling everything, you know, what did you find most meaningful when you started out? Like, because 
even when you are feeling close to, you know, ending it all, there's like, I don't know. I don't know if this is your experience too, but like, there's still part of you that almost resists the help in to some degree. So, you know, when you decided to make the, the change and seek out the help, what started to really be the most meaningful to you? The most meaningful thing was, um, so my, my psychiatrist who became my teacher and is now my dear friend, um, Pradeep Chatter sat in front of me and he said, look, it's very simple. He said, if you do everything that I tell you to do, you will feel better and function better than you ever did before, irrespective of mm-hmm. all of the way that you feel now from an illness perspective. And I thought, wow. And I, and I, my, my mentality is if I'm, if I see there's something that I want to get hold of, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll run 150 miles, I'll climb walls, I'll jump buildings. So this guy was mm-hmm. telling me that he could make me feel better than I ever did before. So I was sold. Um, mm-hmm. and for me at that point, whatever he asked me to do, I do. And, and he just said to me, the homework is important. Your commitment to this process is important. And I said to him, look, I'm, I'm, I'm all in let's let's get going um and we did and we worked hard for for the next three or four months and and everything changed and 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 i found me which was probably me that i lost when i was when i was seven um Mm. and i found empathy and love and compassion and warmth and a sense of forgiveness for myself and for so many other people in my life and and um and joy you know joy at the end of losing a a child is almost counterintuitive you think it's not possible but all of a sudden i realized that that joshua had actually saved my life because if joshua if we didn't have joshua and if he hadn't have died and if i hadn't have been through that trauma my life was going to unravel anyway and it may have been a whole lot different um so i i found a great sense of appreciation at the end of such a tragic period of time man and you you definitely have put in the work to get there without a doubt you know that that doesn't that doesn't come without putting in the the effort i have to know about this you went to japan and did some yamabushi training master training yeah. what is that how was that and how did that come to be <laughs> you know how did it come to be is a funny thing i have no idea right i've no idea how i actually <laughs> how I, how I found these guys. It was kind of weird, but, um, I'd, I'd lots of interest in, um, in, in Buddhism and I was really interested in Zen Buddhism. And then I was reading articles about the samurai and the last shogun in Japan. And this all kind of interested me. And then somewhere in the mix of, you know what it's like, Google is probably sending me stuff because it's predictive, right? Or maybe it's the universe, <laughs> who knows, but <laughs> right, right. probably more like Google. Um, I, I come across the, this thing about Yamabushi priests in, in, in Japan and this, and, and who they are and what they're about. And, and they, you know, the, their, their religion, um, is called, uh, Shigendo, which is, which is what I practice now. And it's this unbelievably mystical, um, uh, religious practice. That's, that's a mix of Shintoism and, and Buddhism. Um, but a big part of it is what they call magic. You know, magic is within it. Um, and and what they believe is that within the sacred mountains of, of um, the, the Shonai region in Japan, which is 
very, very isolated and, and always was, like even when Japan went imperialism, um, moved towards imperialism, this part of Japan was always isolated and the last area to fall. Um, it's the, 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 the nature of Yamabushi practice and Shigendo is that nature is the guide and all that we need to sustain ourselves is within nature and within the sacred temples in the mountains and within master training, our focus is to learn to understand the nature of what it is to be uncomfortable, to meet our demons, our darkest challenges, which is what happens on, on the pilgrimage in master training, which is which is beyond intense. Um, it's not dissimilar to samurai training without without the swords, but you know, we're fasting, we're we're hiking for hours, we're 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 hot, you know, making our way up, up torrents of, of extreme rivers. Um that one of the key parts is that that we can't talk to each other for five days and anybody who falls wow. or hurts themselves we have to leave them we're not allowed to look at them we have to let them wow be. it's all about finding that sense of understanding that you are here to save yourself and nobody else can do that for you but in saving yourself you will learn how to then truly reach out a hand of compassion to people who need it so it's um yeah it's really intense i mean it's definitely the most intense thing i've ever done in my entire life and i wasn't ready for it because a couple of the guys who were who were there were like these aussie kiwi um ex-military um you know super fit dudes um and i'm i'm not unfit but this was unreal and and our our trainer our master master hoshino who's 74 you know he he is like um uh, a creature from another time or place because he would run up these mountains like this is the third highest mountain in japan and we go to the highest point where they where they set up a special commemoration for all of the people in japan who died in the tsunami and they carried all these scrolls up there ten thousand scrolls and he ran up that mountain and we ran up behind them and we were going up the mountain at the tail end um of um a typhoon and um, everybody else was coming down the mountain and we learned afterwards a few days later that we asked what were they saying because we weren't allowed to talk to him or talk to anybody nothing was allowed to be said for five days and we said afterwards when we were allowed to talk to him why were people saying to us on the way down and he said oh they were smiling and and, and shouting at us and saying only the yamabushi run up the mountain in a typhoon everybody <laughs> else comes down oh my gosh oh do you feel like you after a, a crazy experience like that, do you feel like you have mastered your mind more? Do you feel like more disciplined, more more empowered to 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 be able to lead and show compassion to others after something crazy intense like that? Yeah, I, I like. I feel very lucky for um, being through the experience. Um, it it helped deeply with my own meditation practice, um, my own spiritual practice, my own sense of place in the universe. Um, but it's, it's ongoing, you know, every day is a new day. Every day is a new time to practice. Um, I hope to be back again in, in November. And, um, this time when I go, um, it's a second grade within, within the practice and I will then be given, um, a Yamabushi name. And then um, be properly settled into um, the the lineage within the Yamabushi. So I'm very lucky and privileged 
to be able to do that because there's not a lot of Westerners, a handful who who have been taken in. Um, and I'm lucky that there's a couple of the Yamabushi now who speak English. Um, so like my master, Masahoshino, does not speak English and my Japanese is practically non-existent. So um, I'm excited to get back. Man, a wild experience. Well, I, I look forward to it for you. <laughs> I look forward to all the updates on it. Yeah, it is wild. We wear, we wear all these traditional clothing and everything over the period of time. And it's, um, yeah, we, everybody dresses in white and we dress exactly the same as we have for 1,500 years. And the nature of the dress wow. is that you're accepting that you're dead and the, the, the mountains breathe life back into you again and you find your connection in, in the universe with the magic. Oh, my gosh. That's it sounds unreal and it also sounds unreal that you're getting to do it multiple times. And I think the the craziest thing that like as you already stated, only a handful of Westerners have even had the opportunity or to, to have even completed something like this. So the fact that you get to do it multiple times is insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah, it is. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one last funny thing on, on that, um, and and that is, you know, we're kind of three days into into this intense training, and we've um, they wake us up at all times of the night, so you never know what time it is. You, they take your watches, they take your phones. You're not allowed to have any orientation whatsoever. Wow. So they wake you up, and and you're just out, and you're marching then straight away into the mountains for hours. And then we come back and, and we go through um, every night they put us in this smoky room where, where you can't breathe. And, and the aim is that you meditate and stay there as long as possible until such time as you crawl out on the floor. And this is to signify what it is to live in hell and, and how to be pure and true to yourself. So we we finished this practice one night and we thought, man, we're all wrecked. We've been hiking for hours. We've done this practice. You choke and crawl along the floor mm-hmm. to get out of this smoky room. And then we got brought out to, to march again into this forest. And we're going into this forest and all we have is traditional Japanese lanterns with us. And we're all dressed in our Yamabushi um, outfits and the... Um, the master is at the front and he calls back and asks for a light to be sent forward. And we're all, you know, now three days in, nobody talks, nobody moves, everybody operates in kind of military style. So the light gets passed up. And as the light's passing up, he can see something in front of him and he re- gets hold of the light. Now he's like probably five foot two and he gets mm-hmm. the light at the front. And as he holds the light up, we see it's this massive black bear that's standing. Oh my gosh. And it's like, it's probably like four foot away from me but we're also conditioned to just stay still we stay still nobody says anything and we'd all been warned of the dangers of where we were we knew black bears were 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 a real present threat and he just reaches into his belt and takes out a little bell holds it up to the bear this black bear and rings the bell a couple of times and the bear just looks at him looks at us turns around and walks off and it was (laughs) incredible experience to see what it's like when you know how to be part of nature and that's what he demonstrated there (laughs) wow it was it was mental and we couldn't talk about it right so it was another three days before we're allowed to speak so the first thing everybody said when we were allowed to talk was what about the bear (laughs) (laughs) nobody's gonna talk about the bear that's crazy and not even able to be able to say anything No, no oh man wow that is insane and the, why do I feel like it was just like a very calm interaction between you guys and the bear? It was ringing up the bell, calm. a very slow goodbye. Yeah. 
Oh man. Wow. That's man. I'm going to be, I'm going to be <laughs> thinking about that for the rest of the day. That's crazy. It was, it was really, it was really one of the, one of my best experiences in my life. It really was. That's awesome. Justin, we're, we're coming to the final question of the podcast. And before we, we do it, I just want to say, wow. Um, for one, thank you for not giving up on this life. Uh, your, your story and your grit and now your, your ability to show compassion for others and your empathy for yourself and how you are, are now using everything that you've learned to help other people better themselves, have a more enriched life, a deeper focus, a, find more fulfillment in the right things is really, really amazing. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being you, Justin. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks, Nick. That's, that's, that's really beautiful. Thank you for, for saying that. It's, it's touching and I appreciate it. Absolutely. So the last question is, you know, you've ran $8 million companies. You've achieved all the material success. You've traveled, gotten married, you know, you've had Luca. At, at what point in your life would you say you were the most happy and why? I would say now, this moment, you know, the, the, the thing that I've learned most throughout my life is that whatever we fear brings us anxiety and whatever we regret brings us anxiety. So the only place to find control or sovereignty or opportunity or peace is, is this moment. So now as, as, as we, as we talk and, and close, um, this is the moment where I'm most happy and, 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 you know, I'll leave this recording and, and go and sit with my wife and son and, and that will be the next moment to be happy. So I've learned that, you know, we only have this moment, moment by moment, you know, breath by breath, everything can change. You know, I saw two children die in my life. One of them, my nephew, the other one, my son. Um, if you're, if you're waiting for something to happen or you're putting plans off because of the thing that you want to work towards, well, what happens if your life gets ripped up and shredded? Don't wait. Just be here now. Enjoy this moment. Man, I love that. Justin, where can we find you on the internet? How can people connect with you? And what do you got going on? You're putting a course together as well. Tell me about all of that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we put a, we put a course together. Um, so I've, I've, I've put, put really, um, 21 days of stress reduction using, um, the tools that I use myself within, um, mindfulness and meditation, um, neuroscience, which I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of, and I've been studying for the last few years. So, um, so last summer, um, I, I, I took a production company. We've, we've put together, um, a really nice course, um, so you can, you can find that on remote tribe.co.uk. Um, and, uh, you can find out about me on there as well. Um, or you can find me on justincaffrey.com. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll put together an offer as well, um, for, um, for your listeners, Nick. So anybody who Yay. wants to jump on, if they want to, if they want a 25% discount, put in the coupon code, Nick and they'll get it sweet love it and everything will be in the show notes so they will know exactly where to find it awesome justin thank you for being on the show thank you so much i appreciate it thanks man it's been a pleasure thank you so much absolutely see you next time bye take care bye that was the episode you just listened to it justin caffrey 
bringing down the house, am I right? He is one of my favorite people I've ever talked to in my entire life. I know why you're really here, though. I know why you stuck around. You're stuck around for that dang riddle. So what did addition say to subtraction when they discovered each other on Facebook? Add me. Huh? He said add me. (laughs) Math teachers are quivering right now. Anywho, be sure to leave a five-star review. So thankful you listened to this. And I will see you next week, Friday, 6 a.m., baby. Be there.